I get to touch people's lives with what I do. And it keeps me going and I love it. And I think if you give it a shot, you might love it too. Ooh, yeah, slow down, baby. Let you know from the tracks that we flow like crazy. We want stocks with big pops and no big drops. Trends making ends, sweeter than lollipops in the summer. Where's my funky drummer with those big bottom beats? Grill up some meats on the Parisia, you gotta earn your leisure. Saute up some greens, feeling high like anesthesia when it hits your veins. Clouds are bringing rains to the prairie. Peter, Paul, and Mary wish they had a hammer. Pound out this grammar, making bread with this manna. Stir the pot, make it hot, we are the top chefs. Cooking up tasty profits on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. The Express is rolling through Aspen, Colorado this week, back at the Food and Wine Classic to help celebrate 40 years of that festival with our pals at Food and Wine. We're going to hear from a couple of the best new chefs from 2022 to talk about the business of being a chef and a small business owner, and we're going to dip back into the world of investing in wine and spirits, searching for yield in those grapevines. We'll get to all that in a minute, but first, let's catch up and get set up for what's cooking in the capital markets. U.S. equity markets finished lower last Friday, but not after another strong week of gains across nearly all sectors as investors celebrated a deceleration in inflation and the Fed's decision to pause on interest rate hikes. All of that was expected, but the Fed did catch a few folks off guard by implying that it could hike rates a couple more times before the end of the year. Here's Chair Powell. If the economy evolves as projected, the median participant projects that the appropriate level of the federal funds rate will be 5.6% at the end of this year, 4.6% at the end of 2024, and 3.4% at the end of 2025. Did you catch that? The Fed's projection for the federal funds rate is 5.6% by the end of this year. That's nearly half a percent higher than where it sits today, and then it drifts down to around 4.5% for most of next year. Higher for longer. That's the reality we're going to be operating in as investors for the next 18 months. But that's not scaring stock investors anymore, Uh uh-uh. Just knowing where rates are likely to be is powerful information, and seeing the light at the end of the tunnel is kind of clarifying, and investors like clarity. For the week, the Dow rose 1.3% last week. The S&P 500 climbed 2.6%, the index's fifth straight weekly gain and its best performance since March. And the Nasdaq Composite just keeps on jumping, jumping 3.3% for the eighth straight week in a row of gains. The Nasdaq and the S&P 500 opened this week at their highest levels since April of last year. And that leads us right into our big three for the week. Number one, on this train, we listen to Kenny Rogers, and we don't count our money at the table. But it is worth noting what has happened so far this year in the U.S. stock market as we get close to the halfway mark and what usually happens after that happens. So far in 2023, the S&P 500 has rallied 15.5%. That's the strongest start to a calendar year for the index since 1997 when it climbed 20.6%. It ended up that year a whopping 31%. When the S&P 500 starts out a year with double-digit gains by the halfway mark, it closed even higher by the end of the year, 9 out of 15 times. And remember, it was a little over a year ago, June 13th, 2022 to be exact, that the S&P 500 fell into a bear market. The median gain a year later, according to our pal Ryan Dietrich at the Carson Group, is 24%. The market is up 17.6% since June 13th of last year, so we are well ahead of the pace, historically speaking. Let's see if history is still in our favor. 
Number two, investors seem to think so if you're looking at where the money is flowing. Money market funds experience outflows for the first time in two months, and cash held by institutional investors has dropped to its lowest point in over a year. To be sure, there's still well over $5 trillion sitting in money market funds held by institutions, so there's still a lot of firepower ready to be deployed to stocks if this sentiment continues. And consider this. For the first time, the S&P 500 earnings yield, corporate bonds, and treasury bills are all offering the same yield, around 5.3%. This means that investors are not being compensated for taking on any risk unless they venture further into the stock market. So that's what they're doing. A 5% return is perfectly fine if you're really worried about the market falling apart. But if you're paid to deliver alpha for your clients, you got to be taking much bigger swings. Which leads us to number three. That's exactly what you and I are doing, taking bigger swings. Us individual investors are feeling a lot more confident and ready for risk, according to Investopedia's latest sentiment survey. 23% believe the S&P 500 will be up more than 5% this year, even 5 to 10% this year. That's a big jump from just back in May. 18% expect the S&P 500 to decline 10% or more this year. That's the lowest level of pessimism all year. And only 30% are investing less due to concerns about the market. Our top concerns? Inflation is at the top of that list, followed by a recession, followed by US-China relations, then high interest rates, and then Russia and Ukraine. As for bubbles, it is getting a little frothy out there. And our survey respondents believe that AI-related stocks are the biggest bubble. Mega cap tech is in second, followed by housing stocks, and then internet and communication stocks. All those sectors have had big rallies so far this year. And then we like to ask, what would you do with an extra $10,000? And individual stocks are back on top of the list after losing to CDs in the last round back in May. CDs came in second, followed by paying down debt, then ETFs, and then money market funds. So sentiment is bullish, according to Investopedia's latest sentiment survey. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it's a shortened trading week here in the U.S. given the Juneteenth holiday. Global equity markets slipped on Monday, and with no big economic or market-related catalysts this week, it could be relatively quiet out there as the second quarter winds down. We will get the latest updates on the housing market, including building permits and housing starts for May, and the NAHB's housing market index for June. On Wednesday and Thursday, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell will testify before Congress as part of his semi-annual testimony on monetary policy. You can be sure that Powell will be asked about the Fed's recent pause and why more interest rate hikes are coming, especially if those rates translate into job losses and a higher unemployment rate. On Friday, S&P Global will release the latest Purchasing Managers Index, the PMI reading, for the month of June. On the late cycle earnings tape, we will get results this week from companies including FedEx, Accenture, Darden Restaurants, and BlackBerry. The Express had the pleasure of being invited back to Aspen for the Food & Wine Classic, the 40th anniversary of that high-end, high-taste celebration in the beautiful Rocky Mountains of Colorado. I led a seminar on investing in wine and spirits with three fascinating entrepreneurs who have each carved their own niche in the world of investing in wine, spirits, and the micro-economies around it. Anyone who's been around wine their whole career will tell you that the best returns you'll ever get on your investment is actually drinking it. That's the point. Sure, you can try to speculate and buy cases of wine you think will be more valuable in the future, but it's complicated. You have to know how to pick a future winner. That means predicting tastes in the future. Not so easy. You can create your own collection and sell it down the road too, but you have to store it perfectly, have the proper documentation that shows provenance, insure it, and a host of other issues. It's complicated. 
Or you can take a totally different approach, like the three people who are on my panel in Aspen. Carrie Laz is one of the most well-known and respected wine experts in California. Her K. Laz wine collection in Napa Valley is the mecca of valuable wines in North America, where she has established a blue-chip collection of the most valuable wines in the world. She can get her hands on any bottle in the world, and she connects great wine and winemakers with wine enthusiasts and collectors, making herself the go-to broker between the market and the consumer. Her investment in wine is her expertise and her ability to make a market. Here's Carrie on what people need to know before they attempt to become wine collectors or investors. We taste a lot of wine. So we're tasting, you know, 3,000 wines a year and probably about, I'd say close to 250 make the collection and for numerous reasons. But the biggest reason typically is they don't fit the program or the tastes don't really match the retail price or um, so we're pretty specific on what we're looking for. And the biggest thing is the timing of it. Like when we get into the wine, we're getting into it before the critics get into it. Players like us saying to our clientele where they know our palates and we say, this is the wine you should get into, get into it now. This is the price we're going to buy direct from the wineries. So that's a really big difference than going through multiple tiers. So our pricing is going to be very different than like by the time it hits the East Coast or it hits Florida, whatnot, Texas. So you're buying at a very reasonable price for the quality. That's an investment right there. Because one, you're saying, okay, this going forward probably will increase in price. So from a buyer's perspective to then sell, it's a good margin. So, but then if you just love wine and you're watching this wine evolve and you got in early, then the likelihood is that you're gonna continue to be able to get that wine from us because you came in early, right? Um, So I would say first, get in early with something, believe, find somebody who you actually trust if you haven't tasted the wine, whoever it might be, uh, somebody else. I'm sure you guys have somebody that you can kind of rely upon who knows your palate. So I would say that's the number one most important thing. Two, I would say is be patient, wait your wines out. If you are collecting to enjoy, we always say like, don't buy one bottle. That doesn't even make sense. I mean, what do you do with a bottle, right? So buy six. I love the I love the number six. I like 12 too. But, you know, buy it because it's really great to taste a wine today and kind of see where it evolves. It's great to taste that wine probably 10 years from now, right? And it's great to taste it 20. The biggest thing too, and, and to what Caleb's point, is um, buy from somebody you trust, right? So we... We buy direct from wineries. We do not play in the gray market. It's just not something, one, we have to do, and two, we don't trust it entirely. So how is the wine stored? Is the wine authentic? That's always going to be like, should be in the back of your head at some point. And so for us, we're really fortunate that we have the relationships with the wineries that we don't have to worry about that. There are some really interesting things happening right now in the space, you know, NFTs. We talk about NFTs all the time. It's like, is that even that, you know, it's kind of taking this interesting, like, Ebb and flow, but there is a really interesting component to that when we think about provenance with a wine and this idea of let's buy it directly from that domain or that chateau and let's have them store that wine for you so it's not going back and forth and getting transported here and there. And then you literally, you own that quantity or those bottles and you know the provenance and you know how it's stored. And when you're ready for it, then you get it shipped, right? So there's some really interesting things happening in that in that space that we're learning more about. And that to me, that's a really great growing space for you as the consumer.
Michael Evans is the founder of The Vines. His investment expertise is in providing experiences around wine, allowing people to invest or own vineyards around the world and actually be winemakers. The Vine now has over 230 vineyard owners and more than 170 award-winning wines, plus an award-winning hotel in Argentina. Here's Michael on creating the investment opportunity for wine experiences. So for me, ROI and wine is 100% related to the experience and the joy sharing it with friends. Our members and our owners are not looking at a return. Some of them sell a little wine, make a little money. But all of you, I'm sure, are going to make way more money in your day job than you are going to be investing in wine. Not doesn't mean that it's not fun. So we focus on people that want to learn by owning a vineyard, making their own wines, whether that's in Mendoza, where you can own your own vines and create a wine each year, or going out to... Casanova de Neri in Montalcino and blending a Brunello with Giacomo and his team. Or then next week I'll be in Champagne with uh, Drapier making uh, my own champagne. It'll be a, a champagne that's unique in the world. 300 bottles that I will create with Michelle and Nugo and I'll have my label on it. And uh, that's a pretty special experience. So we're really driven around those experiences, not only of the making wine, but learning about wine through the making of it, then having that wine with your own label to share with your friends and traveling around the world with a bunch of great people making wine in Spain and France and Italy and Portugal and the U.S. Does anybody want to hang out with Michael for a few weeks? <laughs> Come on down. Have a summer, <laughs> summer break with Michael. I'm, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. But the expectation is this is for the experience. At the end of it, you may get a few cases that you're a part of or you may get your name on a, on a vineyard. But it's not something that you should, you can turn around like a security, like buying a collection, reselling. This is about being a part of it literally from the ground up, right? That's, that's the driver. I mean, certainly when you're making barrels of wine, you end up, I make 15 wines around the world. So I sell it. I have a, um, many of our members have a online website and they sell some of their wines to offset some of the costs. But mostly it's about going and hanging out with Ernie Lucin on a boat, traveling down the, the Moselle River. And he says, okay, well, this wine here that's in your glass, that comes from the spice garden. It's that vineyard up here. A couple minutes later, you're like, okay, now here we are at the clock tower. This wine comes from there. And then you get to understand by being with somebody like Ernie, why the difference is in terroir, why one is east facing and one is north facing, why those are different, why the wine grown on the hillside are different from the valley. And having Ernie share that information with you directly is, is kind of what we, what, we, what we focus on. And Noah Friedman has taken a completely different approach. His company, Top Shelf Ventures, invests in wine and spirits like traditional securities, acting as a seed or angel investor for brands that his team believes have staying and growing power. Well, I guess I'll start with what we look for. I think, you know, we're a, we're a traditional venture fund, so we're not available to all retail investors. There is some interesting stuff happening around Reg CF with Republic and platforms like that that allow, um, I think, VinoVest as well as another one that's super interesting where people can actually, retail investors can invest directly in wine. For our investors in our fund, our LPs, and I would say people who want to get exposure to the category, the signals we're looking for generally is velocity and retention, right? So we bake it backwards from the end consumer, right? So I, I think about this in terms of at retail or online, where are customers showing their signal with their wallets and their buying that one brand or one category, et cetera, particularly brands in my case, is disproportionately outperforming its competition on a relative basis, right? So I'll give the example of Grazi, just because it's topical and you can all taste it and see it. We found them when they were a little less than a year old. It was a former tech founder who made some money in a tech business and over COVID, he fell in love with wine. 
he saw the signals of box wine that the economics implications could be huge. And he started an e-com direct consumer business just in box wine. We have a web scraper that was kind of perusing the entire internet to see what was in the category, what was happening. And we got in touch with Steven, the founder, and he was doing a moderate, probably 50 to 100K a month in e-com sales directly through Grazi. But the retention was unbelievable. 65% of his revenue on a monthly basis was coming from returning and repeat customers, which in my business as a venture investor is very strong. And that means the bucket is not leaky, if you will. You can keep pouring more in and people are going to continue to rebuy it. And so we led around in November purely based off the conviction of, okay, when people try this wine, let's put the box wine thing aside for a second. When people try the wine, they really like it, right? And that core concept there scales quite nicely. And so we invested in... November, close the round, I'm on the board. And since then, I think it's between five and seven X on, on a monthly revenue basis. The subscription numbers are through the roof. And again, it was purely based off that core insight that the customer who is buying this product is signaling that they really love it. And that's at the end of the day, when I pull back all the romanticism of how much I love different wines and how much I love the industry at the core of how my partner and I invest, we're looking for quantitative signals of velocity. So repeat purchase rate, which we'll talk about at retail, et cetera, and online and retention because that that is scalable. Right. And how do people exit? They exit like they would a normal security or a normal venture investment to make their money back? Or do people want to hold on to this as a piece of equity or a company that they like being attached to? I think it depends on the model and what you're looking for. So for me as an investor, this is purely, to be quite frank, an M&A play, right? So the belief of our venture fund, like most other venture funds who invest in tech or real estate, et cetera, for the most part, is the bet and the belief is that at a certain point, somebody's going to acquire the brand or someone's going to buy it outright um, or something of the sort. Does that always happen? No. Are there opportunities where you can sort of buy and hold and reap great profits? Absolutely. But our model particularly is looking at what is an opportunity for this brand at some point to be acquired. Every year, Food & Wine honors the best new chefs in the United States and honors them with a special magazine issue and an invitation to the classic. They get to introduce their food and spirits to tastemakers around the world and 3,000 paying guests who flock to the Rockies to experience the best food and wine breaking onto the scene. For a chef to be named to Food & Wine's list, it can be a career maker or a career amplifier. Chefs are artists, but they also have to be small business owners and operators. Whether they are running their own restaurant, or more than one in many cases, or running their own brand as cheffluencers, a term I just made up, they have to have business skills, which is something they definitely don't teach you in culinary school. I caught up with a couple of Food & Wine's best new chefs from last year at this year's Classic to talk to them about that challenge. My name is Calvin Ang, and the restaurant is Bonnie's, located in uh, Brooklyn, New York. How long have you been cooking? My whole life, but the restaurant's been open for a year and a half now. Restaurant business is not easy. Everybody knows that. What are the biggest challenges you faced in just a year and a half running the business of food? Uh, definitely managing such a large, large staff. <laughs> it's definitely the hardest part of it, but it's very rewarding and fun at the same time. What are the big challenges of running a small business that you're trying to scale right now? Every day is, is a challenge, obviously. Like, it doesn't matter the recognition that you get. It, it depends on people who still have to come to the restaurant. We have to fill those seats every single day, fill those turns every single day. And staying relevant is definitely the, the challenge. How about in terms of cost and inflation, food costs obviously vary throughout the year, but they're still pretty high. How do you factor that in as a chef when you're thinking about your menu, when you're planning sort of your food rotation through your, your kitchens? 
um, just try to find creative and useful ways for, for every single product and utilizing everything and so we have zero waste as best as possible so that way we have no waste and cut down on our on our food costs. What kind of hacks have you learned or what's that top hack you've learned developing your small business as a chef that allows you to be a little bit more efficient? The way we prep, the way we do everything in the restaurant is very high prep, but quick pickup time. So that way we could crank and really do more volume than we typically would be able to in a small restaurant. And how have you evolved as a small business owner in that just that year and a half? Oh my God, I feel my priorities and everything that I do has changed so much. It's like, I always joke that this is the least I've ever like get to touch with touch food because there's so many other things that have to be taken care of when you're running a restaurant. But we have a very, very solid team who, who I can trust. Congratulations on the recognition. Well earned. We'll come see you at your restaurant. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Ana Castro from Lingua Madre in New Orleans. And how long have you been a chef? I guess I've been cooking for like 11 years or so. When did you decide? What was the moment where you were like, I think I want to do this. This is what I want to do with myself. I think I've always wanted, to, I've always known that. Always, truly. Like uh, maybe I was 15 when I told my dad that everything else, like being an architect, which is something that I also considered was like, I'm probably going to be a chef. He wasn't like super excited, but he, I think he thought it was going to be a face and it was just going to blow over, but it didn't. Didn't blow over. So you're a chef, but you're also a restaurateur. You have a restaurant. That's a small business. What are some of the most important lessons you've learned operating that small business while also trying to make great food? I think uh, one of them is that you cannot do it by yourself and you need to surround yourself with people that can help you in the way that, and to be mindful also that the way that you need to be supported changes as you grow, as you mature, as you learn things, it's going to change. So you're going to have to constantly be looking for people that can support you. And um, looking for me, those people like some have come into my life like recently and some others have been always there. For example, my sister, but it's like very important to know that, that you cannot do it by yourself and uh, that vulnerability goes a long way and that you're not the only person opening a restaurant in the world, you know, or like having a challenging time. So just like kind of putting that into perspective that you were anything that you're struggling with or, you know, it has a solution. It's just not right in front of you, perhaps, but it has a solution. I did several years in, in the kitchens in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the whole operation of kitchen management, managing food costs, thinking about ordering, especially with prices so variable and inflation this year. What have you learned from that perspective, sort of being in charge of, the, of a kitchen that is producing, you know, food for the masses, food for, for a restaurant crowd? Well, actually, our restaurant is really, really small. It's 36 seats, and uh, we usually don't cook for more than like 60-something people a night. So um, also, we offer a five-course set tasting menu. So that helps us control our costs very well and scale them. We know exactly what our, our um, you know, our, our check average ranges in between the 120 and 130 something dollars per person. And it stays there. The only thing that changes is of like wine pairing, where you know that like there's very little variables to it. So it's very easy to control it. I've also like fostered a really good relationship with all my purveyors. So I am, I guess, one of the few restaurants in New Orleans that is not beholden to Minimum ordering minimums and everything, but this has been a result. Like, you know, that those special considerations that I get have been a result of me working with them for years and fostering our relationships. So was that intentional, having the, the five-course uh, selection and knowing you could already bake in an average check price 
and then back everything out of that? Was that an intentional business decision? It was an intentional business decision so we could like control labor and we can control costs, but also it just fit into the narrative of the, uh, what we were trying to express with the restaurant, which was a story of like being Mexican, of being Mexican in the South, of being Mexican nowadays, you know, like in this like changing modern world, because the idea is like, how do I fully express what I want to with saying like, oh, you know what, Antra, you're going to get like the chicken or the fish. So I didn't really think that the story translated. And I really wanted to pay homage to my upbringing with this story. So I chose to be my my debut, my first project to be something really, really heartfelt. I think as I move forward, I would probably, you know, the intentionality is going to remain. It's a little dense, you know, sometimes I think at, at Lengua Madre, it's just like everything has our purpose of being and we communicate it all. And like my team in the front of the house, my team like does a fantastic job about communicating this story and like making it their own. But it is a lot of work. So for my next projects, I don't envision doing something right. like that. What's the, the North Star? Just to continue opening great restaurants, serving great, interesting food, paying tribute to your heritage. What do you see from, you know, from a career perspective? Because you've been honored as the best new chef at Food & Wine for 2022. So congratulations. Thank you. Where do you take it from here? I think, uh, you know, it's like, it's the acknowledgement that, yes, this is great. That is great for my career. It's great for everything. But it's also a huge position of privilege. And with this comes a great responsibility of saying like, okay, I've made it through the door. How long can I hold this door open for others? And also, how can I change the industry for better? So for me, my my North Star is just trying to continue to test and push the, the envelope on like, what, what can we do with restaurant structures to make them more equitable places to work at and, you know, kind of like abandon the idea of like, oh, you know, a restaurant job is like an entry-level job or like something that you work at while you go to college or but more a career, a profession and treated with such regard with with comes with benefits and retirement plans and everything. You know, there's like, there is a way, there has to be a way, you know, because like if there wasn't a way, like, you know, how how can like all these people like that have like huge restaurant groups, they make so much money. If not, they wouldn't do it. So there is a way to like slice the cake a little more evenly. So I'm looking forward to maybe making a couple of mistakes and learning from them and just like try. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Oscar Peterson, who hit us up on the gram suggesting mean reversion for the term of the week. We love that term because it's kind of like one of those natural laws of the universe that can be applied to securities and just about everything else. Well, according to our favorite website, mean reversion or reversion to the mean is a theory used in finance that suggests that asset price volatility and historical returns eventually will revert to the long run mean or average level of the entire data set. This mean level can appear in several contexts, such as economic growth, the volatility of a stock or security, a stock's price-to-earnings ratio, or the average return of an industry. Of course, there could be external events or factors that negate mean reversion, like a global pandemic, an unexpected product failure within a company that destroys its business, or a blockbuster success that changes its price trajectory. But knowing what the mean is can be very useful in trying to predict future returns. Great suggestion, Oscar. We're sending you of Investopedia's finest software to keep you you looking smart. 
Special thanks to our cousins at Food & Wine for inviting us back to Aspen to celebrate the Classics 40th anniversary. If you love food, if you love wine, check out Food & Wine on newsstands or online. And if you really love it, try to get out to Aspen next June for the next Food & Wine Classic or one of its East Coast events. Special thanks also to Anna Castro and Calvin Ang, two of the best new chefs in America, for spending a little time on the Express. And thanks again to our terrific panelists who joined me for the Investing in Wine panel in Aspen over the weekend. We're going to let the Tedeschi Trucks Band take us out this week. This incredible group, led by Derek Trucks and Susan Tedeschi, stole the show in Aspen last weekend. And while I may be late to the party on this one, I think I found my favorite new band. Check them out wherever you stream your music and on their website, or the next time they come to your town. They are amazing. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line. Run that shit to let my train.